And so when I did decide to officially have my first day, my day one was the first day one. And it will be my last. That's my commitment to myself. I've had a day one and that's it. I'm <laughs> not going back there. But thank heavens, I came upon Tribe Sober, I think a week into quitting alcohol. And that has definitely made the difference. I would not have managed on my own. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 124. If you're a new listener, then a big welcome to you. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss a thing. My name is Janet Goron, founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. Many of those people discovered Tribe Sober via our workshops. Over the years, our workshops have evolved from in-person workshops to Zoom workshops, and now we've added a brand new online version. It's perfect for people in tricky time zones or people who like to work through the content alone rather than in a group setting. The course is called Kickstart Your Sober Life and it was launched on the 5th of August. We've got 25 Kickstarters all signed up, all connected via a chat group and all embarking on this life-changing journey. You can get a PDF which summarises the content of the Kickstart course just drop me a line at janet at tribesober.com and I'll send you one right away. And of course, you can go to our website, tribesober.com and click on the Kickstart tab and the information is there as well. This week, my guest is one of our valued tribe members. Jax is an educator who's passionate about her work. There is a downside of being passionate about one's work, of course, and that is that sometimes we just overdo it. That's what happened to Jax, and she suffered from work-related burnout as well as from alcohol dependence. Jax is one of those rare people who only ever had one day one. She's stuck with the tribe since her personal day one almost a year ago, and she's been inspiring and motivating our members ever since. I began by asking Jax to introduce herself. Good morning, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast this morning. Uh, I'm Jax. I'm 45. I live in Johannesburg. I'm absolutely passionate about art, culture, travel, literature, philosophy. I love reading and writing. I love the outdoors. I celebrate my 18-year anniversary with my partner this year, I have two phenomenal grown-up stepsons who live in France. I've got a wonderful sister who lives just up the road from me, and she's my best friend and soulmate. I have expertise in child and adolescent development. I'm a qualified senior educator. Um, I've got qualifications in psychology, training and development management, the postgraduate certificate in labor law. But most of my professional Career has been in tertiary and secondary education for about 25 years, and I'm currently not working so that I can fully invest in my burnout recovery program. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Let's go back in time, shall we, Jax? When did you have your first drink and what was it like? And were you an enthusiastic teenage drinker like me? How did it all work out? Janet, that's a very interesting question because if I cast my mind back to adolescence and young adulthood, there really is nothing remarkable or definitive 
that would have foreshadowed any future relationship with alcohol or potential problem with alcohol at all. It was very unremarkable. I don't recall the first time I ever actually tasted the substance. I don't recall any watershed moment in my teens that in any way sort of tells me whether I liked it or I didn't like it or, you know, there was some pleasure associated with it or even disgust. Not at all. I think I very much had such an ordinary adolescence and young adulthood where there might have been occasional drinks had socially, possibly a few sips of something at a New Year's occasion to say ching ching. Um, But because I did not grow up around alcohol much at all, my parents aren't drinkers, my grandparents on both sides, I didn't really have a drinking crowd of friends. They were all very studious and dedicated to their studies. My sister doesn't drink. My boyfriends tended not to drink. They were all quite ambitious And there was a very balanced and healthy upbringing, and alcohol simply did not play a role. So nothing nothing significant occurred throughout the teens and 20s and even my early 30s. I can't say I didn't misbehave sometimes on a night out with friends here and there, but really, Janet, I just can't recall anything around alcohol. It simply was not on my radar. So let's let's work our way backwards then. When when did you first start to worry about your drinking? I first started worrying about my drinking quite recently. I noticed that when I would go to dinner parties with my partner, and we would go to beautiful restaurants and lovely dinner parties, we have an international circle of friends, we love our food, we love traveling to lovely places, but it was at dinner parties that I seemed to always have that one extra glass of champagne. Everyone else had had their glass of wine with a nice meal. Perhaps it was a wine tasting. Perhaps it was wine pairing. Everyone else had a little bit. And I seemed to have a little bit more. I was often, I mean, this sounds a bit ridiculous. I was often very surprised that I felt intoxicated. It always came as a bit of a shock to me when we got home after a lovely evening out that I felt quite dizzy or a little bit tipsy or, you know, eventually I had to use the word drunk. Very surprising. It was never an intention to go out and get a buzz or anything like that. It was simply a sophisticated beverage to accompany an adult evening out. But I did definitely always have that one or two extra glasses. And over time, that really became unpleasant. My partner was not impressed. He does not drink. (laughs) He's a doctor on call, so he dare not, and he's not interested. He doesn't like it. And he wasn't impressed because he said that I tended to repeat myself and sometimes become a little bit animated or argumentative. And he always just said to me, why can't you just stop after your glass of champagne and, you know, everyone's had their fill, just stop. Don't ask the host for a second or a third. Um, And so that's when it became apparent that there wasn't, there just wasn't that off switch that other people talk about. I also noticed there wasn't an off switch. Jess, you said recently. Uh, how recently are we talking? Are we talking a year ago or five years ago? How long? Um, when was it that you got this? That this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this affinity for uh, champagne, crisp champagne, mm. uh, ice cold. And when, a did, when, did, glass. when did husband start grumbling? <laughs> he started grumbling, I'd say, about five or six years ago. But it was very slow. I mean, as I said, nothing remarkable. There wasn't some episode at someone's home where, you know, um, (laughs) I had to phone people the next day and start apologizing for things that happened. That really wasn't like that. It was so slow at the same time as being so slow. It was also very fast because the problem really developed in the last five years or so and particularly accelerated in the last two to three years, I'd say, leading up to my decision to obviously have to um, do something about it. 
But I also, um, apart from noticing that I definitely pushed the boundaries at these dinner parties, it started worrying me when I was waking up with cracking headaches and feeling awful and feeling very shocked and surprised that an ordinary evening out turned into feeling dizzy and waking up with these headaches. And it just didn't occur to me to frame it in the correct way and to tell myself, gosh, you've given yourself a hangover. That kind of language had not entered into my consciousness at all. It was simply, oopsie-daisy, I overdid it. I have a bit of a headache. <laughs> a bit of denial going on there, if I may say. Yes, I think and so, Janet. Did, so. did you try and... Did you try and take your partner's advice? Because I used to get advice like that. Why don't you just have one or two glasses? Why do you have to have six? <laughs> Did you try to cut down? <laughs> no, not at all, Janet. I thought he was overreacting entirely. And I just said to him, you know, don't be such a, you know, don't be so conservative. And um, I'm an adult lady having a nice time. I, I'm, yes. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not driving. I'm putting anyone at risk and I'm perfectly fine and I pretend that I woke up the next day with all the energy in the world. <laughs> so I, I, oh, really, yes. I really didn't really listen. But of course, underneath it all, I, I, in retrospect, I can see that those comments from him did hit a nerve because I was defensive about it. Over time, certainly, it became a situation of I had to tell myself before an evening out, look, You've got to behave tonight. Just watch what you're doing. Don't have more than a glass or two. I had to have that internal dialogue so that I didn't, you know, ruin our evening at all. But Janet, really, all of that was fairly mild compared to the real problem, which was starting to want this during the week. So instead of it being occasional, it became habitual. That's when things turned and that was the concern. I wanted it during the week. I wanted it on my own and without any context. In other words, it's not a wine tasting. It's not a wine pairing. We're not having a lovely dinner. We're not meeting friends. There is no context for this drinking. And I started doing it habitually and on my own at home during the week. And that's really when it kind of accelerated and took a turn, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a warning sign, isn't it, when it, it evolves from being something you do socially to something that you do possibly to self-medicate, you know, the day at work. I'm not sure, you know, if there was a trigger behind you wanting to drink alone and in the week. Well, Janet, that's the key. That is exactly my story. There was a trigger and it was work. I just accidentally seemed to have tripped and fallen into an alcohol dependence that was a really maladaptive coping skill for an increasingly difficult job, a career that became very demanding, huge responsibility. The workload piled and piled and piled up. And instead of addressing the overwork or the increasing encroach of overwork into my personal space, I, I, I simply dedicated myself to managing the tasks, investing excellence and effort and energy I wanted to accomplish, I wanted to impress, I needed to meet my deadlines. It's a job with a huge amount of responsibility and accountability. It demands constant engagement and research and just being on top of your game it's not a profession that, um, that you can kind of coast through. And so I was spending a lot of time working very hard and I didn't realize alcohol became a way to take that edge off some of that stress. I wanted to reward myself after a really tough day to get through some of the more tedious and menial tasks and the paperwork. I tended to pour myself a nice glass of wine to try and keep me company as I waded through that work in the evenings. And I didn't realize that as work sort of started to reach its tentacles into my personal life, it was taking away from the time I would have spent doing things that are healthy and sort of, you know, family, hobbies, exercise, hiking, the things I loved, reading. You know, I had a very full and balanced life. I really did. And slowly, slowly, the creep of overwork seemed to actually colonize 
that. And it took away from the time I should have spent focusing on personal development and hobbies and my own growth. And the next thing I know, fast forward two or three years, I work 70 hours a week. And the only way I can imagine taking some time out is having a glass of wine and putting my feet up. Those were the two things that my life had shrunk into work and having a glass of wine. That's it. It was that small. Wow. There, there has to be more to life, doesn't there, Jax? However much you love your work, you know, and I've always loved my work as well, but it can't just be about work and drinking. There's <laughs> no. got to be more there. <laughs> no, and I think I think part of the, part of the uh, problem is when you are so passionate and you love what you do and you believe in excellence and professionalism and you hold yourself to a high standard and you value what you do, you invest all of yourself into it. I believed in what I was doing. I merged my personality with my work and turned it into a lifestyle, believing erroneously that if you love what you do, you don't ever work a day in your life. But that is such a a myth. You have to separate your paid work, no matter how much you love it or believe in it. You have to separate your paid work from other areas of your life that need your attention and your energy. Yeah, I agree. When did you accept that you, you really needed to um, to quit the booze? I recognized that I had developed a cluster of symptoms that um, were consistent with a diagnosis of burnout. I think it's only recently become an actual diagnosis. It may not officially be in the books yet. It doesn't matter. It's still a fact and it exists. I recognized the cluster of symptoms I had worked to myself, I say almost to death, not lightly, not in a hyperbolic way, but I'd become so unhappy. The exhaustion left little room for any kind of focus on uh, healthy self-care or mental health. I was mentally and physically exhausted, and with that exhaustion came a, um, a negativity and a pessimism that I, I couldn't think my way out of. The the physical exhaustion coincided with a mental and emotional exhaustion. And the light in my life diminished and was almost extinguished. I don't think I had depression per se, but I certainly felt depressed, unmotivated, and very frightened of my future. I could only imagine that my future consisted of decades more of slog and I couldn't face that and I didn't want to and I started entertaining thoughts of well perhaps I just don't need to be here this is an unrewarding life it's not meaningful anymore and I'm not experiencing any joy there's such a disconnection and um, such a lack of just lack of pleasure lack of of happiness and it spiraled within myself and I began to withdraw I withdrew from my partner and my friendships and anything that I had ever enjoyed. It became quite isolating. This obviously also coincided with an increase in the amount of alcohol I was ingesting. And so those two kind of fed each other in a very dangerous way. And I felt a despair and a despondency that is a huge red flag to anyone who starts entertaining ideas of possible suicide. I didn't think that there was much much to live for anymore. It was that severe. So I would say that what that what prompted me to start thinking about how I could intervene in my life was recognizing the level of despondency and the amount of alcohol was not helping. And at the end, I thought to myself, oh my word, I have inadvertently created what I think may even be an addiction. In retrospect, Janet, I don't think it was addiction, but I think I was on the trajectory to that. It was abuse of alcohol and it it was dependence. But I don't think it was addiction, but I think it could have become addiction. And I got the fright of my life when I woke up one morning so severely ill, so ill that I, I couldn't get out of bed. And I decided that's it. I, I can't live like this. It's enough. And that's when I, when I made the conscious decision to start doing something about it. 
You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Wow. Makes me think of uh, Lynette when she describes her not this moment. Yes. Have you had to do that? Exactly. Not this. not this. Anything but this. Wow. Gosh. So it's, it's amazing how alcohol can play a part in bringing a woman like yourself just so low. You know, it is a depressant. And yes. it sounds as if you, you decided to make a change as part of a, a strategy to, to get yourself out of that, that dark place you found yourself in. Now, you're one of our star pupils at Tribe Sober, aren't you, Jax? <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, had you tried other ways of getting sober before you joined us and became top of the class? <laughs> oh, Janet, you flattered me. No, I had no idea. I, I didn't. <laughs> at this point, I don't acknowledge to myself that I have a drinking problem or a problematic relationship with alcohol. I see myself as somebody who is exhausted and unhealthy and needs to change her ways. I didn't know that I needed to even look for recovery. What I did start doing, and I have to say, Janet, I think this is so important. All of this coincided more or less with the um, South African government's decision to put a ban on alcohol to manage the pandemic. And that incredibly interesting move um, by the government prompted a lot of conversation and very interesting articles and discussions on the media uh, in the media I started reading those articles I started listening I'm interested in in everything this was very interesting to me I was reading articles um, internationally people were having a look at South Africa's pandemic response by way of banning alcohol other countries were asking themselves if they if their nationalities had alcohol problems. The Guardian published a number of articles about whether or not Britain had an alcohol problem. Reading comments and blog posts and sort of tweets, I started realizing that a lot of people were having the conversation, how much are people drinking at home? How much are people drinking in the evenings when they get home from work? Has this accelerated in recent times because of stress, is global stress and anxiety? Is this having an impact on people's mental health? Uh, what is the relationship between women and drinking? I did the whole mommy wine culture did not go unnoticed by me. I was very alarmed at observing a number of parents I know circulating these ridiculous memes. It was never in my circle, so it didn't come my way, but I could see it happening and, and it did concern me. But it forced me to start reading out of interest. And what I was reading forced me to question my own behavior because I could no longer pretend that this wasn't me also. I couldn't pretend that I wasn't the person also opening a bottle of wine, you know, not at seven o'clock in the evening with dinner, but potentially at three o'clock in the afternoon because I was already feeling the need to relax or unwind or take the edge off. By the time I found Tribe Sober, I had been reading blog posts and blog sites and websites. I had come across Club Soda. I had come across Hip Sobriety. Those were interesting. And I realized that there were conversations happening that benefited me, that could benefit me. And I decided there and then to start investigating. And so when I did decide to officially have my first day, my day one was the first day one. And it will be my last that's my commitment to myself. I've had a day one and that's it. I'm <laughs> not going back there. But thank heavens, I came upon Tribe Sober, I think a week into quitting alcohol. And that has definitely made the difference. I would not have managed on my own. Yeah, well, that's that's wonderful to hear. And yeah, once you plug into that, that matrix, I mean, we talk about unplugging from the matrix, but also plugging into that dialogue about drinking and women and sobriety is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It's like a rabbit hole. My husband often says to me, aren't you bored talking about all that sobriety stuff yet? And I'm going, well, not really, because there's always something new, isn't there? Some new study, some new point of view to, to look at. So talk us through those early months. I think it's about six months now, isn't it? So Almost, yes. talk us through, you know, was it really, really difficult to start with or was it a matter of just making up your mind and then that was it? 
No, I'm not going to say it was easy, but I also remember writing in my journal to myself on the second day, this is going to be as easy or as hard as you make it. In other words, I knew that my experience of changing my life, quitting alcohol, getting healthy, was a matter of the kind of mindset I was going into this with. I did not start my sobriety thinking that that this was a punishment and poor me. And I feel so sorry for myself because now I can't ever have champagne again and everyone else gets to have fun. That was not my mindset. I had come to a point where I knew this substance was dangerous. It was harming me. My sanity felt like it was slipping beneath my through my fingers. I was losing my grip on everything that meant anything to me. And there was no way I was going to romanticize this uh, daily habitual sipping mindless ingestion of the substance at all. So I went into it believing that I was doing myself a huge service that I would, my future self would thank me for doing this intervention sooner rather than later. And I think that makes a huge difference. If you go into sobriety feeling sorry for yourself that everyone else can drink and you can't, I think you're setting yourself up for failure because you're telling yourself that you're missing out on something great and you're not. You are stopping something dangerous and toxic that clearly is making you ill physically, mentally, possibly psychologically, is inevitably going to damage more and more as you continue with it because it's progressive. And so my intervention was me thinking to myself, I'm doing myself such a favor here. I obviously care enough about myself and my life and my relationships that I'm going to do this. So I went into it mentally enthusiastic to do something positive. What I didn't expect, Janet, which was hard, I did not expect, because remember at this point, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I still don't. I don't like the the word. I'm not using it. But I didn't grasp the chemical properties of alcohol because I was totally ignorant. No education at all on the subject of alcohol other than it can give you one hell of a headache. That was the sum total of my understanding. So I did not know that for some reason, and I think it happens differently with different people, I'm not sure biologically how, but I think people process alcohol somewhat differently. I don't know, but the detox that I did not expect to go through happened and I was shocked. I, in my past, quit cigarettes, you know, and I was mildly irritated, put it that way. That's it. Quitting cigarettes was mildly irritating and I got on with life. So I just assumed that quitting alcohol would be the same. I'd be irritated um, and then it would be fine. And it was just a matter of, you know, behaving well. So nothing prepared me for the physiological withdrawal and detox I went through, which was shocking. And thank heavens, I, I took note of it to remind myself, gosh, this substance is even more dangerous than you imagined because look what you are going through physiologically. I had what what they call phantom hangovers, the pause that people talk about, the post-acute withdrawal syndrome. I've experienced that and I still do. So I had um, physical symptoms of withdrawal that I didn't know I was going to have. And it was I got a big fright. So that was difficult. Um, I did have some very strong cravings. So in the beginning, it wasn't easy, Janet. I don't think anyone should go into this thinking it's a cakewalk. It's not. This substance is so dangerous and it does things to you that you don't know, that you don't expect. And if you aren't educated enough, you won't know. You just won't know what's happening to you. Thank heavens Tribe Sober provided so much information on alcohol as a substance. And I was very quickly able to comprehend what it is I was going through. So I would say the first month for me was pretty awful. I did not enjoy that. And hence, I have no desire to return to that experience ever again. 
Yeah, it's certainly a bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? When we, I mean, I was the same. I uh, I tried to moderate, but it was only when I tried to moderate I realized how dependent I was on this stuff, you know, and then you start thinking and then you discover it's linked to seven different types of cancer. And, and you think, you know, what was I thinking? Drinking a bottle of this every night for decades. I must have been crazy, you know. The, and I think the more that we learn about alcohol, the less, you know, we feel like like drinking it. And uh, I love your comments about mindset. I mean, that is absolutely the key, isn't it? And that's why many people fail because they try to use willpower and willpower is hopeless because it just runs out after a while. You have to go deeper than willpower, which is in your conscious mind. You have to attack it subconsciously, don't you, with your real kind of mindset of looking at this. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to open up my life and, you know, improve things dramatically rather other than it being something that's taken away from me. And I think going into it with that mindset, and you can, it can get you through the tough times because, as you say, that, that first month is challenging. So it got a lot better for you after that first month? Oh, yes, it did. Um, and even during my physical discomfort in the first month, what, what I actually – just a bit of a paradox because as uncomfortable as I was feeling psychologically and, and physiologically, I was dealing with the shame and embarrassment of telling people what I was up to and having to kind of confront this scenario. But I was also so interested in the actual work itself. I was genuinely interested in watching documentaries about alcohol, about behavior around alcohol. I was genuinely interested in the material that I was reading and what people were talking about. I enjoyed listening to podcasts and conversations. I, I started really paying attention to the ways in which alcohol has insidiously sort of inserted itself into every aspect of our lives. Um, and it sort of became just such an interesting conversation piece. For me, I did so much reading. I enjoyed journaling. Every time I learned something new about it, I would put it down. Motivational quotes. It just opened up a sort of health and wellness um, aspect that I had never really paid much attention to. Um, and it, it, so it was interesting. And I met so many people and learned so much. Learning skills, um, different ways of um, managing life and stress and all of this, it was fascinating. And from day one, I, I was all in. As you said, Janet, I threw the book at it. I was all in. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to understand myself, my behavior, wanted to understand how society responds to alcohol um, and become more aware of it. So it's been fascinating and hard, but the work to me was its own reward in many ways. So I think if anyone is keen on trying this out, Something that is helpful that, you know, will definitely um, set you set, set someone up for better success is to be interested in what they're doing. I didn't shy away from it. I didn't pretend it wasn't happening. I didn't pretend to people that I wasn't doing this. I wanted to talk about it. And having an interest in this, I think, will completely change the dynamic in sobriety. So, yeah, I've thrown it. I've thrown everything at it, Janet, as you said, but I wouldn't have known what what the work is or what book to throw at it if someone hadn't given me <laughs> a kind of formula. I love that, yeah. Yeah, we have, of course we have to figure out what book to throw at it. So, so when you started um, bravely telling your friends that you were doing this, what, what kind of reaction did you get? I bet they said, oh, don't be silly, you haven't got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Janet, they definitely said, don't be silly, you don't have a problem because um, – <laughs> I don't seem to fit the stereotype that people often talk about. I mean, you've mentioned it before. There is a stereotype that comes from watching way too many Hollywood films. <laughs> you know, um, there is a stereotype that that um, that people have. And, you know, someone such as myself obviously doesn't fit it. Um, but also they hadn't seen anything, Janet. They didn't see they didn't see what was going on. I didn't make a spectacle of myself. Um, so no one saw but they were incredibly supportive from the get-go, fascinated and interested. And I, um, I you know, I, I've just had, had had such positive conversations. What I did do, this is something I think I've sort of recommended to other tribe members. To me, it, it was, you know, sort of pivotal in making all of this work, 
is within the first two weeks when I suddenly realized, oh gosh, this is a little bigger than what I thought. This is not just simply just stopping something unhealthy. It's a bit more complex than that. I realized I couldn't pretend to people that I was on a health kick. I had to tell them the truth so that I could get better support. Also, because I can't, I didn't want to live a duplicitous um, life. I do have good relationships and those relationships are founded with you know, grounded in trust and honesty. So I had a little coffee date with each of my close friends and significant others. And we had a coffee date one-on-one where I said, look, this is what's happened. This is what's transpired. This is the program I've kind of signed up to. I've joined this fantastic um, group and I need your support. I can't, I can't have any sabotage. I need allies. And I actually did separate people into potential saboteurs or allies. Luckily, as it turns out, I have no saboteurs. Everyone really wants me to be happy and healthy. So those are good relationships. I haven't lost any friends because of this at all. They're all allies. But it is important, I think, to be upfront with people who you are going to be living with and spending time with and who are significant in your life because you can only pretend that this is a health kick for so long. You need people to understand that this is complex and difficult and you are trying to change a dysfunctional set of behaviors into something more productive and their understanding and support will empower you to get this right. Otherwise, you set yourself up for failure if there is um, denial and pretense. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that approach, Jax, because it's, um, I mean, it shows a certain respect, doesn't it, as well for your friends. You know, you're saying you're, you know, how you take this is important to me and I need you on side, you know, and and who can resist an appeal like that? So, yeah, absolutely. A, a great way to to deal with that. And I like your columns and the fact that you didn't have any saboteurs. So, well done you. Nice circle of friends you've got there. Uh, I just wanted to touch briefly on uh, the fact that you're obviously from the world of education and I don't want to take you back because I know you're on a break. But just just a, th- a thought, you know, it always strikes me, especially when I, I know about all the crazy drinking that goes on in universities and college. I mean, I was kind of part of that, I suppose, years ago. But these days it seems to be quite hectic and I hear of liquor companies sponsoring Freshers Week and all that and uh, I just feel that, that there's got to be a role for universities and, and schools, you know, just to, I'm not saying to try and brainwash everybody to be sober, but just to have like one lecture on this is what alcohol will do to you and it's a lethal substance and, and just treat it with caution. And I just wonder if you've come across any such interventions in your your yeah. world of education in here in South Africa. Oh, Janet, I'm profoundly concerned about adolescents and young adults and alcohol consumption and binge drinking. It's horrific and very dangerous. And ridiculous um, drinks, you know, downing shots of tequila and dangerous, um, dangerous substances with a high alcohol concentrate and it's insanity and the access that they have to alcohol is shocking. And I also think that there is a conversation that needs to take place around burnout, burnout amongst students and learners and their alcohol consumption. I do think that there is a correlation between their overwork, their pressure, their stress, their studying and their examinations and so on. And the stress that they're feeling within their own family units and the amount of alcohol that they're consuming to just get blind, drunk, pass out, drunk, and just absolute escapism. And it is a concern. In my experience, schools do not address it. There are a couple of obligatory talks. Those talks are lumped in with don't smoke, don't vape, you know, obligatory talks around consent and other teenage, you know, concerns and behaviors. But it's it's all lumped in together with general trying to get teenagers to sort of behave well. It often comes from a moral point of view. I have have yet to see um, a a deeply engaging intervention 
on the matter of alcohol consumption with teenagers that connects their stress, their fears, their terrors um, um, with, with alcohol. It's more about just say no, um, don't get drunk, don't put yourself in an unsafe situation. It's so superficial, it's very judgmental, and it doesn't in any way demonstrate any deep understanding that there is a highly addictive substance that is aggressively marketed to young people. And of course, we can't ignore the relationship between teenage drinking and watching their parents drinking. And at the moment, there is an increase in drinking amongst um, with parents. It's either dad on the golf course or dad watching sport with his friends drinking far too much, or it's mom and champagne or wine culture or mommy juice or, you know, those. So, so they're growing up watching adults consume obscene amounts of alcohol. They're watching adults use alcohol as a coping mechanism for increasing stress, anxiety, and overwork. And they themselves perceive alcohol to be a good, fun way of escaping a horrible school week. So I think it's a recipe for catastrophe, to be honest. And there is nothing I've observed in education that is doing anything about it or is addressing this particular matter in any deep, thoughtful way. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. If, if anyone's listening to this and they can they think, oh, yeah, I recognize all that work and I think I'm, I'm suffering in, in that way as well. I know that you've, you've taken a complete break for a while, which sounds very sensible to me. Uh, but what about, you know, people that have got to carry on working these 70-hour weeks, et cetera? Any tips for them? I mean, how can they manage it without resorting to uh, our friend Mr. Alcohol? <laughs> yes. So I understand not everyone um... – can do, um, you know, just sort of tap out like I have, and, I, and I've done that. It's, it's essential to my recovery. I think it's very important to recognize when it's happening. And something I should have done that I didn't is somehow you have to sit down and take stock. You have to have a look at the pressures and the expectations that you face and make a decision about how to confront those Somewhere along the line, you have to learn the word no. You have to. You have to be able to stand up for yourself better, to say no, to um, put down boundaries. You have to, at some point, close that laptop, switch off the phone, and disconnect, even, even if there's a deadline looming, even if there's the expectation that you'll answer an email from your boss. At some point, the workplace is going to have to reckon with an exhausted, burnt-out workforce. And the only way that this reckoning will take place is when people start saying, no, I can't manage, I can't cope, it's too much, I need downtime, I'm not a machine, I'm not a robot, this has to change. And I wish I had had the energy and the insight at the time to do this, to say, no, I'm taking on a, a, a lighter load, I'm not working on the weekends. I'm not working in the evenings, but I simply do not have capacity to do so. And it's encroaching on my mental health. It's encroaching on my family life. This is not on. So somewhere you have to dig down deep, find the courage to have boundaries, to say no, and to start pushing back and being honest with superiors that this is unsustainable. At the same time as having a thorough audit with what is going on in your life. What are you eating? What are you drinking? How do you relax? How are you, what, what does your downtime look like? Those few hours that you do have to yourself, what are you doing? Are you getting fresh air and sunshine? Are you collapsing on the couch? Are you mindlessly binging junk food and watching, you know, hideous junk TV? Um, if that's the case, recognize that you have to, you have to do an intervention there um, because, you know, successfully managing burnout or impending burnout cannot happen if you don't also be honest about some of the maladaptive coping mechanisms that you um, are using in this crisis. So say no, draw boundaries, take stock, do an audit, be honest, 
and make a decision that although it's going to be hard work, your future self will thank you for it, but you have to change the architecture of your life as it stands at the moment. Yeah, great, great advice there, Jackson, and great questions. I think uh, I think you need to become a burnout coach. Yes, and Janet, I just have to emphasize that none of this is possible without getting fresh air and exercise and proper nutrition. It's just, it's fundamental. Your body needs to breathe, it needs, it needs oxygen, it needs healthy food, it needs water, it needs hugs, it needs all of that. It's not enough to just say practice self-care. It has to come from all sides. Especially as, uh, because for many people now, that that phrase, which I don't like very much, but this self-care phrase, it means a glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a reward. It's not a reward. (laughs) Please don't let wine be built into your reward system. Alcohol is not a reward. It is um, instant gratification. It's a temporary solution that will ultimately have horrendous consequences. Um, So it's not a reward. A reward is spend a beautiful Sunday having a picnic with with your loved ones. Go for a hike. Um, Go and sit by a river if you can. Read a book. Learn to swim. Just do anything that does not involve a cheap, addictive, toxic substance. Well said, well said. Now, talking about hikes, <laughs> we we, uh, we advise people, don't we, in Tribe Sober to, to get a project early on, you know, partly to take their mind off alcohol, but more importantly, to make sure that their, their happy brain chemicals stay triggered, you know, because as human beings, we all need a project. Now, your project was an amazing one. You, you aimed to do a, a run, was it, in, in the Kalahari? Just talk to us about that. Oh, Janet, what joy. <laughs> so my, my my big project in sobriety, and I started it on the 1st of January this year. So instead of waking up on New Year's Day with a dreadful hangover, I woke up and did my very first trail run on a dairy farm. I loved it. It brought me so much joy. And who knew that I had it in me? I didn't know that trail running, you know, was something that I that I could do. It wasn't on my radar. I kind of also accidentally sort of tripped and fell into this. And it has been just wonderful. I can't get enough. I'm doing another event in a couple of days. I'm doing another 20-kilometer run out in the sticks. So this was an event I came across on the internet as I was looking to spoil myself um, with, with, with a big project and to reward myself for making great great new choices. It was, um, it's called the Clip Springer. It happens every year. It's in the Northern Cape along the Orange River. And this year was particularly phenomenal because the Orange River was in flood. So the waterfalls at the, um, at Ukhrabis were spectacular. So it's quite unusual. There's a paradox of the desert, you know, with, with the waterfall. So really beautiful scenery and a grueling desert run. It's a two day event. I did the light version, which is 40 kilometers over two days, and the other hardcore people did around 60 kilometers, I think, over two days. A phenomenal experience, and I attached a couple of days to to the event to make it a whole sort of getaway for myself, Um, and it was just incredible. So a lot of my time was spent training for it because I'm, I'm, I'm new to trail running, and it's a very particular type of sport. You know, you do have to cross train. You need some stamina. You need some endurance. Um, and you know, you have to run with a trail bag. So I had to train with weight on my back. It was really exciting and, and, and spectacular. I highly recommend that everyone put on a pair of tackies or sneakers or trainers and find a trail somewhere on a farm. There's so many around Johannesburg, Google revolution trails. You can, you know, for the price of a glass of wine, you can walk a spectacular five kilometer, 10 kilometer or 20 kilometer trail. You don't have to run if you're not fit enough. There are walks that are available, but get out into nature. It's a game changer. It is just just getting out in the fresh air and it just changes everything, doesn't it, I find. There's obviously been so many benefits uh, for you of sobriety, Jax. I presume uh, the the future is going to be an alcohol-free future for you. Definitely, Janet. No day ones, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I did it That's... once and I'm not going back. Exactly. Why, why would you go back and do that first month again? You know, that, that was tough, wasn't it? And if, if you had to pick top three benefits off the top of your head, what, what would you say? 
Oh, Janet, you know, it's just so many. Um, I'm happy I found myself again. Somewhere along the line, I really lost myself. Uh, I lost myself in work and I lost myself at the bottom of a glass of wine. It wasn't me. Um, I'm so happy that I've made friends with myself again. I find myself interesting. I like my own company. I enjoy doing things. I've got hobbies and interests. Um, all those projects that I had shelved, I have the energy to get back to now. I've got the time. I've got the energy. I've got the health. And it's not just physical health. It's mental health. I don't have that cloud of despair. I don't feel despondent and nihilistic. Um, I dare I say happy joyful, thoroughly enjoying my relationships again. Um, the home is a happier home. There's so much positivity and light. I was dragging everyone down around me. I'm just, I'm optimistic. I look at the future and I don't see slog and doom and gloom. I see that I'm in control, that I can make decisions. I've got my autonomy back and I'm sharp and I'm keeping myself safe. And this is exciting, Janet. And I've met people through sobriety, wonderfully, just wonderful people, interesting. I've networked like I've never networked before. So there's just so many benefits. But the most important one is I found me again and I like me and I'm enjoying spending time with me, um, not intoxicated. Oh, that, that's a beautiful place for us to, to end on, Jackson, an inspiring place. And anything else you think we should cover before we say goodbye? Just to say a huge thank you, Janet. I think what you offer is modern, interesting, exciting. There's so much. I highly recommend that if anyone is so uncomfortable with their habitual drinking and they can see that it's not getting any better, just stop, pause, do some research Check out something like Tribe Sober and, and don't think that quitting alcohol is depressing and boring and dull. It's exciting. It's, it's an adventure if you want it to be. It really is. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story, Jax. Let me pull out some key points. Jax was definitely a late developer when it came to alcohol. Her parents didn't drink and she mixed with a pretty serious crowd who were just not drinkers. As she put it, drinking was just not on her radar. But as she hit her late 30s, early 40s, things began to change. She found herself wanting an extra glass of champagne or wine when she was out at a restaurant or a dinner party. Her non-drinking partner noticed and remarked to her that she often got quite animated towards the end of an evening, even becoming argumentative sometimes. And then he came out with that remark that so many of us have heard from our friends and families. Why can't you have just one? Just like the rest of us, Jax of course had tried to have just one. In fact, there'd be a little dialogue going on in her head as she got ready to go out, along the lines of, I must have just one tonight. Unlike the rest of us, it rarely worked out that way. I can still remember feeling such a failure that I couldn't have just one, or even just three in my case. And that's why it's so important to join some kind of sobriety group if you're struggling. They will understand that no, you will never be able to have just one. So if you're ready to connect with people who will understand you and meet you where you're at, then just go to tribesober.com and hit the Join Our Tribe button. Jax had discovered that she had no off switch once she started drinking and the problem accelerated during the last few years. She began to suffer from hangovers, but she was still in denial, just claiming that she had a bit of a headache that was completely unrelated to the drinking on the previous evening. And a worrying development was that she had started wanting to drink during the week. Her habit had escalated from occasional to habitual. And then she discovered how much she enjoyed drinking alone. This really is a red flag when our drinking evolves from something we do socially to have fun to something we do alone to self-medicate our stress. A huge workload was a major trigger for Jack's. Her work left her no time at all for personal development or for the hobbies that she used to enjoy. In effect, no time to refresh and recharge. 
working 70-hour weeks, her only respite was putting her feet up with a glass of wine. Unsurprisingly, Jax fell victim to burnout. Completely exhausted, she could no longer find any pleasure in anything. She withdrew from her partner and her friends. She became isolated and drank more. She felt a sense of despair and despondency and she knew she would have to quit drinking. So she began to research into sobriety and found many resources, including Tribe Sober. A week into her sobriety, she joined Tribe Sober and discovered the power of having a community who understood her a community who'd been exactly where she was. Jack started her journey with a perfect mindset. She was determined not to see it as a punishment. Quite rightly, she saw this journey as an opportunity, an opportunity to change her life and to find herself again. As Jack's quite rightly said, if we go into this feeling sorry for ourselves and being annoyed with other people for drinking, we're just setting ourselves up for failure. Her first month was really tough. She had lots of detox symptoms and pause. Pause, if you haven't heard about it, P-A-W-S, stands for post-acute withdrawal symptoms, and that can strike us after we quit alcohol and other drugs. It can last for a number of months and it can include anxiety, depression, low energy, sleep problems and even anhedonia. Anhedonia is the inability to feel pleasure, a real low that some of us suffer from during those early months of sobriety. So if you're in early sobriety and you're struggling to feel pleasure from everyday activities, then have a listen to the Tribe Sober podcast episode 55. That's when I speak to Dr. Loretta Broining about the best ways to avoid anhedonia and to keep our happy brain chemicals triggered. It really is a game changer. I always say you need confidence and courage to quit drinking. And I love the confidence that Jack displayed by taking out her closest friends one by one to explain exactly what she was doing and why she needed their support. She'd already made the decision that she'd be splitting her friends into allies and saboteurs, but fortunately they all turned out to be allies. I agree with her that it makes a lot of sense to be upfront with people. Our tribe members often text people they're going to meet just to give them a heads up that they won't be drinking that evening. As an educator, Jack's worries about the way young people are binge drinking to deal with their stress, and we agreed that there's a great need for more education about alcohol in schools. We talked about the burnout that Jacks had suffered and how it contrasted with the work hard, play hard culture which exists in many corporates. The difference is that educators have to protect their reputation within their communities, so they tend to withdraw and drink alone. Jacks gave us the benefit of her own experience with burnout. She told us some things to watch out for, some warning signs, and then how to heal from burnout. We talked about the benefits of sobriety, and the biggest benefit for Jax has been a huge one. She's found herself again, and she likes herself. She's reconnected with herself. She's got time, energy, strong mental and physical health, and she's re-engaging in all those hobbies she used to love. She's excited about the future. She feels strong and in control. Well done, Jax. What an inspiration you are. You heard me talking there to Jax about the benefit of throwing the book at your sobriety, just doing everything you can, learning everything you can about this topic. Well, now we've actually got the book for you, except it's not actually a book, it's a course. It's called Kickstart Your Sober Life. It's an online course which will enable you to not only quit drinking, but then to go on and learn to thrive in your alcohol-free life. Just go to tribesober.com and hit Kickstart for more info. So let me end with a member message from one of our chat rooms. In fact, I'm going to dip into the Kickstart chat room this week. Plenty of excitement in there as they start their brand new online course. So here's a message from Kickstarter Brenda, who was consoling someone who was complaining that she'd tried so many things and she still wasn't winning. 
So Brenda says, you're not alone, Nikki. We're all in this together and it's a totally safe space. I did everything you did in an effort to quit drinking such an insidious evil poison. I'm putting all my eggs in this basket, so let's do this thing. We're stronger together. Lovely message, Brenda. Let me find another one. Here's Sally, who's steaming ahead. She says, I've started and completed lesson one, loving the course so far. I've read about four of the Quitlit books, rereading them, and I've bought another four. My preferred mode of learning is reading. Books and videos are better than podcasts for me, but everyone is different. And then we've got Kay who says, I've started, I've started module two now. I've heard Janet's amazing story before, but I enjoy hearing it again. I like how the course is set up with a video, podcast, Facebook lives, and then other resources. And then the quiz, well done. And then we've got one from Nicole who says, we've got this Colleen, it's day two. My daughter, who's 21, said last night, Mum, you're not drinking, which is sad and good at the same time as I drink wine every night. So her noticing is sad but good. That whole section in the course about what alcohol does to our bodies really hit it home for me. I didn't even want any last night. It's poison, sheer poison. It touches every organ and tissue in our body, causing cells to release inflammation throughout the body, causing cancer everywhere. I knew it before, but that section really pounded in my head. So there you go, guys. Some reaction to our kickstart course. Again, if you want more info, just go to tribesober.com and you'll find a heading kickstart. So that's it from me. I'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.